As we come to hear from God, let us go to Him in prayer that He may help us study His Word. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come to You now in our time of worship to hear from You. We expect You to speak to us from Your Word and we pray that Your Holy Spirit would enable us to that end. Give us attentive ears, focused minds, and receptive hearts. As your writer of Hebrews tells us, help us to hear your voice and to not harden our hearts. We ask all of this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Our text this morning comes from Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. And while you're turning there, I'll set the stage a little for our passage. The book of Hebrews is entirely concerned with and concentrated on the supremacy of Christ particularly over the inadequacy of the Old Testament. And our passage sits right in the middle of that great argument. The writer of Hebrews is stressing both the divinity of Christ as well as the humanity of Jesus, that same person. Let me say it a different way. There, There was a real man who lived in history named Jesus. And he happened to be the same person as the Old Testament Christ or Messiah except He was unexpectedly divine. You see, the Jewish mindset believed in a human political figure that would free them from the oppression of the Romans. And they called this person the Christ. But they didn't understand that that person was going to be God Himself intervening on their behalf. The indictment then is, they didn't know their Scriptures quite as well as they thought. And so it's incumbent upon us today to come to the Lord and to study His Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which if you don't use that version, it's printed in your bulletin. So let's read the Word of God together now. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great High Priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a High Priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text highlights three very important things about this high priestly figure. It highlights, first of all, who he is. Secondly, it highlights what he did. And finally, our text tells us where this high priest is now. Who he is, what he did, and where he is now. We must look closely at our passage to understand what it intends to teach us about this person that carries the title High Priest. The writer maintains that this High Priest is Jesus, the Son of God. You know, if we're not careful, we can simply gloss right over that. But let us never do this. First, we need to understand that that Jesus is simply a Greek name for Joshua. So then, this Joshua was a man who actually lived in first century Palestine, probably working as a handyman. And we have a few of those in our midst this weekend and this coming week as they 
put in new carpet as they paint the connector. But you know, they're, they're very different from this man who is Jesus because our text also says that He is the Son of God. In fact, in chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews tells us that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And listen, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. What an amazing testimony. Now, when, when I think of power, I immediately think of one of my childhood heroes, Superman. The man of steel. Now, mainly, I, I loved Superman because he could fly. And let, let's be honest, who in our midst hasn't longed for uninhibited flight? It would just be wonderful. But, you know, Superman was actually a pretty complex guy when we think about it. He was forced to masquerade around as Clark Kent by day, working diligently but sometimes clumsily alongside of Lois Lane at the Daily Planet. But when trouble struck, you know what happened. Off came the clothes in a flash, and all of a sudden the man of tights appeared, the man of steel, ready at a moment's notice to harness the power of sun and to vanquish all evil. And as fun and nostalgic as this is, it's imperative of us to see the distinction between the Superman-type character and our Jesus, the Son of God. Although he lived a double life, Clark Kent you know, was really no human at all. He was an alien from Krypton named Kal-El. Interestingly, that Hebrew phrase is voice of God, but it's no matter. And as an alien, he struggled then his whole life to relate to these humans that he swore and sought to protect. We see this most acutely in his relationship with Lois Lane as he desperately wanted to find fulfillment and contentment in that relationship with her. But at the end of the day, he was just an alien. But you see, Jesus is no such thing. We confess that he is fully human and fully divine. He's, he's not one minute Clark Kent and the next minute, Superman. Once He took on flesh, once the eternal Son of God took on flesh, we believe that He was and continueth to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And that's what we say in the Shorter Catechism. So we can't simply gloss over this phrase, Jesus, the Son of God. It's it's incumbent upon us to study and to think about it. And in fact, you know, we couldn't spend enough time, even this morning, we could spend literally all day talking about the intricacy of this doctrine, but we're running up against our finite nature. We can't conceive of how someone could be both fully human and fully divine in one person. But that is what our text tells us. That's what the Bible maintains. And so we know that our high priest is Jesus, the very Son of God. And we not only see who our high priest is, but we also see what he has done. This man, Jesus, who is God himself, remember, has been made like us, our text says, tempted in every way, yet without sin. I ask you, what in the world does that mean? Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Does it mean, for instance, that Jesus was tempted because he had sinful inclinations like we do? Well, I don't think so. 
And and we can dispel this notion because we know it's not a sin to be tempted. He was tempted, and that's not sinful. But we also know that Christ, that this Jesus, this man, as the second Adam, had a true human nature. But he didn't inherit Adam's sinfulness as we do. And we should pause here to be clear. You know, Adam in the garden was not fated He was not fated to sin and to rebel against God. He was given truly a free human will. He was equipped in everything good to please God. But he chose to rebel actively against God's command. But thank God, Jesus did not. You see, Jesus was free in His human capacity to will, to choose, to decide. But He chose to obey God. And we need to unpack a little more of just what He did, what our passage is telling us. And and I think a brief, and I emphasize brief here, history lesson may help us shed light. The Sixth Ecumenical Council, way back in church history, and it just means the entire church gathering together, met in Constantinople in 681, and there they they had much debate and deliberation, but they decided a very important point about this man that we read about in our passage. They came to the conclusion that in Christ, who was fully human and fully divine, there existed two wills, one according to His human nature and one will according to His divine nature. But you see, Jesus... He wasn't simply divine in the sense that His divinity, His God-likeness took over His human nature. He didn't just hijack a body. It's more than that. He was really tempted. You know, some of us hear often, well, yeah, Jesus was tempted, but you know, He he didn't sin because He was God. You know, I sin because I'm not God, but but Jesus was God, so it it was easy for Him. Brothers and sisters, I I urge you to consider that's that's blasphemous. Jesus didn't sin because in His free human nature, He chose to submit to the Father in obedience. You see, His obedience is much more than simply doing what His divine nature wanted to do. His obedience was a true and active pursuit in following God's will. He was tempted, yet without sin. And of course, that's the difference between Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. That's the difference between Christ and us. You see, when we are tempted, all too often we fall into sin. But Jesus, thankfully, stands in eternity. He stands before, figuratively speaking, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and He does not partake. He actively gives over His will to the Father. And we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane played out most acutely. He prays, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And that will ultimately was for His suffering and dying on the cross. You know, we see this kind of submission, this necessity for a union of wills. We see this importance in the integrity of structure in many things in our lives. You know, if if any of you work 
in sculpting, if you work with pottery, you know the importance of having a unified and cohesive object before you send it off to the kiln. Less, if it's hardened and it has a crack or a weakness, it may be exposed to being brittle and broken. Or we, we see this as people are paving our roads. You see it all around town as they pave the roads, as they lay asphalt and concrete. They must be sure that they are pure, lest air get in there and expand, and even these strong structures are broken down and weakened. Or you see it, and as my father works with steel, it's so important that the alloy be pure. If there are impurities in it, even the smallest impurity, the chemical bonding that's important for the structure's integrity and cohesiveness, it just falls apart. But you know, getting a little more personal, we see this in our relationships too, don't we? We see the, the evidence and we see the effects of two wills fighting against each other. I, I encourage you just to think for a moment about the wedding day, a wonderful, wonderful celebration of marriage, but what often happens when the bride sees things one way and the mother of bride a different way? There can be a little bit of conflict there, or, or maybe on a broader scale. What about if our president disagrees with Congress? This may be helpful to an extent, but to to no end, it can be very dangerous. Or maybe you know this personally in yourself. You experience what the Apostle Paul talks about when he says, his flesh waged war against the spirit that lived in him. I know that all too well. The sin that still indwells us, even though we be saved sinners, it actively fights against the will of God for our life. But thankfully... Jesus Christ was found faithful to submit His will unto the Father. And as such, He demonstrated His potential to be the Lord and giver of life itself. So, when we read these words, when the writer of Hebrews writes this phrase, he wants us to know that Christ, in His submitting to the will of the Father, He is enabled freely to give life to all those who call upon Him. He's able to give life by the power of His blood shed for us. He is able to give life because the Lord looked upon Him in His obedience and said, My son, death cannot hold you. Though He suffered and died, we know gloriously He rose again from the dead. And let's, let's be in very clear about this because it's important for our next point about where the high priest is. You know, most people think, at least I did for a long time in my life, that Jesus and His ascension, when He ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, He kind of reverted back to His divine state. But you know, if we read Scripture carefully, that's, that's not biblical at all. You see, Christ, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, was a forerunner into the heavens, meaning that He didn't just shed His humanity and go back to being God. No, no, no. He is both God and man and continueth to be. He bodily ascended into heaven and He stands as the God-man before His Father on our behalf. Beloved, that should bring great comfort because we do not have a high priest then who is unable to sympathize 
with us. He's, he's not just God reverted back into some spiritual realm. No, He is still a man and still fully God. And He takes our requests before the Father. And we see this in our passage in understanding where He is. We see this in the phrase, passed through the heavens. Now, we can, we can read that and it kind of can be confusing a little bit. You know, does the writer of Hebrews mean that Jesus is on some celestial joyride, just kind of passing around the galaxies or, or through the heavens? Well, I don't, I don't think so. And I don't think that Christ was on to some further destination either, as if He was passing through heaven to get to somewhere else. No, it's a colloquial phrase, and it's a way of saying that Jesus, the God-man, was granted access back into heaven to sit, as chapter 1 tells us, at the right hand of the Father, exemplifying His rest from all work, that He had accomplished what He had set out to do, and that He has gloriously brought it to that end. Let's briefly consider some of this imagery. It's, it's kind of Old Testament imagery that we might confuse here. But you notice, where were Adam and Eve sent when they sinned and left the garden? Where, where did they go? Our text in Genesis 3 tells us that they were sent out of the east of the garden and that the cherubim with the flaming sword was placed there in front of them. Now we can kind of gloss over that just getting the big picture of the story, but, but I urge upon you it's very important because as we consider Jesus, the Son of God, as our high priest, we must understand His function also as a high priest is connected to the Old Testament high priest. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were erected in a very specific orientation. You see, as Adam and Eve fell, they were kicked out of the east of the garden. And the tabernacle and the temple were set up so that as you enter the holy place and you move on to the holy of holies, you are traveling west. Thereby you are signifying that as you move west in cardinal direction, you are coming closer to the very presence of God. So as the high priest marched once a year into the holy of holies, moving westward, he was signifying, I'm coming closer to the presence of God. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. What does that mean for us? It means, beloved, that as Christ marches into the gate of heaven itself, bodily standing before the Father, He is moving westward and He brings us with Him. You see, we can't, we can't miss that. Jesus marches back into the garden the place where Adam and Eve were expelled for all of time and history. He marches back in as the forerunner of our faith and says, I have a right to be here, and so do all of my children. All those that God have given me, they are mine, and I am theirs. And symbolically, at least in this life, we do participate in that fellowship, that intimate communion with God again, and we eagerly await the day when our high priest brings those realities back to us. As He has gone before us into the heavens and is in the very presence of God Himself, He promises to come again and to bring that presence, the really physical presence of God into our midst so that for all of eternity we are equipped to the full of enjoying of God. To the full enjoying of God. As Revelation 22 tells us, taking of the tree of life with the sweetness of its fruit 
whose leaves are made for the healing of all the nations. What a wonderful, wonderful picture that is. Now you may be asking as we close, that's all good and well and it's wonderful to hear that good news, but what does it mean for us? What do, the, what do we then do here at First ARP Rock Hill? How do we engage, as Dr. Leslie told us, in the mission of our church? How do we take this good news? Well, I, I invoke an image that I think is very helpful. You know, you, you often hear the church is a hospital for sinners, a place where those who are sick and wounded come for healing by the hand of God. And, and I, I think it's, that's good, but it's not quite adequate. I think a better picture is that, yes, we are a hospital for sinners, but we're more like an outpost on the front of war. And we get a great picture of this in the wonderful series done, I dare say, probably 15 years ago now. Band of Brothers was a wonderful series on TV that chronicled the movements of, of uh, Easy Company, first, 101st Airborne into World War II. What a marvelous group of men. But you know, there's an episode particularly where they are in the field at Bastogne. It's in the dead of winter. These men are cold and they are broken. And they are fighting an enemy which they cannot see, which bombard them day and night. And they would all but lose hope if it were not for the confession that they hold fast to. That the tyranny of that great evil empire is not meant to be. And that though it stands in front of us, we will ever fight against it. And you see, in that episode, there's a wonderful reprieve from all the action in which they go back several miles to this quaint little European town. And there's a great Gothic cathedral there. There's a church in which they've set up a hospital. And we see in that the very mission of this church, that though we are on the front of war, not against flesh and blood, as Jesus tells us, but against the powers and principalities of this world. We are to call people in and say, we have healing in this place. We are an outpost where if you are sick and if you are broken, if you are unloved, then come to us and we will take care of you. The God of all comfort Himself will take care of you. Jesus, our High Priest, will take care of you. And what's more, he says, let us then come boldly before the throne of grace. Let us draw near to the very presence of God, the Lord and giver of life, and let us access his riches. Let us access his healing and his comfort. Beloved, that's our mission. Let us take it forth into this community that yes, this world is dark and full of suffering, but Christ Himself is with us. And though it be full of pain and heartache, we come to His throne of grace, not to be delivered from it all, but so that we may be strengthened in the midst of that pain and that heartache. Let us always remember to come before the throne of grace boldly, with confidence that Christ will do all that He says and that God is faithful. Let's pray.